and we'll open in a, a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, portion of Scripture before us. Lord, this is a testament to the divine nature uh, of the Bible. Uh, man could not write something like this. And uh, Father, I do ask that the Holy Spirit would grant to us uh, the gift of illumination uh, this morning. Please speak to our hearts. Lord, please encourage, strengthen, rebuke, challenge. You know the needs of our heart better than we do ourselves. So help us to be receptive uh, to the work that you want to do uh, in our lives this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, throughout our world, there are some very secure and safe locations. And one such place is Fort Knox in Kentucky, USA. And it is here where half of the U.S. gold reserves are stored. It's believed there are over 5,000 tons of gold in this secure location. That's a lot of gold. You know, throughout its history, it has housed the Magna Carta. Along with the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and varying crown jewels from different European countries during World War II. Now here is a glimpse into why this is regarded as one of the world's most secure locations. The whole area is surrounded by a military camp. It's guarded by its own police force. It has three different fences around its perimeter. The first containing motion sensors, the second is an electrified fence, and it's speculated, although not confirmed, that there are landmines planted between the second and third protective barrier. And there are guards located at varying points. And if somehow you manage to get through these fences and you get to the building, which I don't think would happen, you've then got to try and get in. The walls are four foot thick, 1.2 meters. Okay, they are granite, lined with concrete, steel and fireproof material. They're actually bomb-proof. The door itself weighs 22 tons and it's blast-proof. The vault is just as thick and impenetrable as the outer walls. A further security measure is that no one person knows the code to enter. Apparently it requires many different people, probably 10, and each party knows their part of the code, and even who has the code is classified. It also possesses a surveillance system that covers every square millimeter on site. Some suggest there are machine guns that fire when a laser is triggered, various trip wires, radar patrol, and the US Treasury has said it is equipped with the latest and most modern protective devices whatever that means. So this is one of the most secure places on the planet. And there's a reason why we have the saying, it's locked up like Fort Knox. But for the believer, the security of our salvation is more safe, it is more secure than anything at Fort Knox. That is the message in our text. Now, many Christians struggle with what we call eternal security or assurance of salvation. Now, it's important for us to understand that these two terms, eternal security and assurance, are different. Eternal security refers to the settled reality 
And that is unchanging because it depends on God. Okay, we are secure. That's the objective truth. But assurance refers to belief in that reality. And hence it's more feeling based and it can fluctuate because it depends on us. Now the question for you is this, how confident are you in your salvation? Are you constantly plagued with doubts and insecurities? Do you constantly fear that, you know, I've blown it again and, and I must have lost my salvation? Okay, do you believe that your salvation is safe and secure? Is that the unshakable conviction of your life? Okay, do you possess this assurance? Now, this text has much to say about the security and safety of the believer. Okay, it's designed to infuse us with comfort and confidence. And I want to present to you some infallible reasons that prove our salvation is safe and secure. And may this grow our confidence and infuse us with much comfort as we navigate this life. So firstly, let's consider the predestined plan. And this is found in verses 28 through to 30. Now, having a plan is of utmost importance. Now, when I was building houses, the plans were vital because these determined what we were to do. Okay, if we didn't have plans, it would have been left up to us builders and who knows what we would have come up with. I'm pretty sure the clients would not have been pleased. Okay, the plans guaranteed that the owner got what they wanted. And they also ensured that everything was done properly. The engineer would specify the design, ensuring the quality and longevity of the work. Plans are of utmost importance. And we learn in our text that God has a plan for all Christians. And this plan, when properly understood, ensures our security and should increase our level of insurance. Okay, God's plan is revealed in verses 29 and 30. Okay, this is the master plan developed in eternity past. God is the architect of this plan. But before we get to the plan, we need to understand that these two verses are actually explanatory. The Greek term translated for that commences verse 29, it means why. Okay, and it gives us the why answer to verse 28. Okay, why do all things work together for good? And hence we need to consider verse 28 first because it ties into the plan. Now, Romans 8.28 is one of the most well-known and most loved verses in this entire epistle. It could be described as a pillow that one can lay their head on when they're weary. Or it is soothing balm to the wounds of life. But like with many popular portions of scripture, it is often misquoted and misunderstood. The verse says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his 
purposes. And this verse is loved because it contains a glorious promise. And the magnitude is breathtaking. It includes everything, absolutely everything in the life of the believer. And this is certainly a key component of the believer's security. Now remember that Romans chapter 8 is all about the role of the spirits in the life of the Christian. And the focus has just been on some of the difficulties that we endure in life. Okay, the world is groaning under the curse. Life is not easy. Sin has had a dreadful effect. Its deadly venom has surged through the veins of the created realm. And hence, we face difficulties. We endure trials and troubles. We have many infirmities, both physical and spiritual. This is the reality of living in the realm in which we exist. And yet, this is not cause to doubt our salvation. Okay, just because things are tumultuous doesn't mean God has abandoned us. Because notice we're told that all things work together for good. Okay, all things means all things, including suffering, including trials and troubles, including challenges. God uses even the difficult and hard things of life for good. But I want you to notice that this is true only for those who are called. Okay, who are the called? Well, this is those who were justified. We see this in verse 30. Whom he called, he justified. So, so this promise is only for Christians. This is not a universal declaration that's all inclusive. Okay, you know, the, the heathen football players that write this verse on their, you know, strapping doesn't apply to them. And neither does Philippians 4.13, just so you know. Okay, but this is true for all those in Christ, but also who love God. All things work together for good to them who love God. Okay, that's the condition. A Christian who loves God. Now, how do we know if we love God? Well, my friend, obedience is the proof. Okay, loving God is not just a subjective feeling. Okay, it's not some warm, fuzzy feeling within, nor is it merely an empty platitude. Sure, I, I love God because Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if this is true of you, you're a believer and you love God, all things will work together for good. That's the promise. Now, on what do we base this knowledge? Okay, how do we know this is true? Because we're told, and we know. Okay, that this is something that we know. How? Okay, how do we know this to be true? Well, this could be an inner impression or conviction by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit works this within. But I would argue that we know this from biblical examples. And from personal experience. Okay, from biblical examples and from personal experience. Okay, if you are familiar with the Bible, we will know that God many times 
has by his providential hand worked things out and brought about great good, even in the midst of great difficulties. He has even overruled evil to bring about good. Okay, what's the first story that pops into your mind? For me, it's Joseph. Great evil had happened. And yet God brought about great good. Genesis 50 verse 20, that, that famous verse. What about Esther? What about Daniel? These stories demonstrate that God does work all things together for good. Furthermore, we learn from personal experience. We know how God has dealt with us. We, we see how God deals with others, how he has worked in amazing ways in the past. And then this helps us to know that he can and does work things together for good right now. Now, this is one reason why Israel was constantly told by the Lord, remember what I have done in the past. Okay, they had to recall his prior faithfulness because this will infuse one with the confidence that the Lord will work in the midst of the present trials and troubles. Okay, so constantly recall the good things God has done for you in the past. So this is why we know that God works all things together for good. Next, I want you to notice that God's providential workings are all-embracing. Okay, it says all things, okay, which means all things. Okay, so God is at work in the affairs of life to bring about good. Okay, to bring about good for the believer who loves him. And this means not only in prosperity, but also in poverty. Not just in times of strength, but in times of weakness. Not just in health, but also sickness. Not just when we succeed, but when we fail. Not only when we get the job, but when we don't get the job. Not only when we get into the course, but when we don't get into the course. Not just in times of happiness, but even in times of sadness. And my friends, so great is our God that he can even redeem evil, redeem wickedness for our good. Now, it's important to understand he does not cause it. God is not the author of evil, but he overrules it to accomplish his plans and his purposes for our good. So ultimately, he uses all things. He actively intervenes in the affairs of the lives of those who love him and uses all things to bring about good. And my friend, that's amazing. That is glorious. That is our God. God is at work in the circumstances of your life. Understand that our God, he's not some distant deity that, that is uninvolved. But rather he's close. He's involved in the affairs of your life. And he works them out for your good. Now it's very important for us to define good with God's dictionary and not our own. Okay, this doesn't promise health, wealth, 
prosperity. It doesn't promise that you will have a life of ease. It doesn't mean there will be smooth sailing and clear skies. It's not an insurance policy that assures that you will get everything that you want. But rather, God's definition of good is revealed in the next verse. And this is God's plan. That we are to be like Jesus. He wants to conform and to mold us into the image of Christ. To restore the image of God in which Adam was made. And the Lord is like the potter with the clay. He's molding. He's shaping us. And he uses everything in our life to make us more like Jesus. Understand This is what he is in the business of doing. Making redeemed sinners to be more like Jesus. This is the good thing. And if we were to look at the life of Jesus, we will quickly learn that suffering is part of the process. Because God the Father exposed his son to the difficult realities of life and death, did he not? And we should expect the same process in our lives. So what this tells us is that the good that God is working, it's not materialistic. It's not physical. It's not temporal. But it has our eternal good in mind. And this is why we can rejoice in the midst of trials like James exhorts us. Okay, count it all joy. Has has that ever kind of hasn't sat very comfortable with you? That's not my natural reaction when things are hard to be joyful. Okay, but we can do this. Why? Well, because these trials are not pointless. They're not purposeless. God is working through all of the circumstances of life for the greater good of the Christian who loves him. Now, as mentioned previously, verses 29 and 30 go on to explain why all things work together for good. Notice verse 28. It finishes with the word purpose. And the following verses unpack that purpose. You know, God's purpose for the called began in his foreknowledge. Okay, so God is omniscient, which means he knows all things. Now, in eternity past, he developed the plan of salvation. Okay, he decreed to save all those in Christ. Okay, the condition or the basis being faith. All who place their faith in Jesus Christ would be saved. And God, in his foreknowledge, knew who would respond in faith. And hence, he developed a plan for what would happen next. So God wasn't like, oh, whoa, whoa, someone got saved. What do I do with them now? Okay, you already had the plan. So once one got saved, what would happen next? Well, this is the doctrine of predestination. Okay, this is God's predetermined plan for the believer's life. Okay, predestinate means to limit or to mark out beforehand or to design definitely. And whenever this term is used in scripture, it never speaks of predetermining who will be saved. But rather it reveals God's predetermined plan once one is saved. 
Okay, it's not a sovereign decree that some will be saved and others will not, but rather it's God's sovereign plan from eternity past that marks out what Christians would be once they are saved. Okay, it's the predetermined plan for believers. One writer said this, Just as earthly parents make delightful plans for the future of their children, so God does this for his children. This verse does not say that he planned that certain people would become his children. It says that he planned that all his children would be like his beloved son. Okay, this is God's plan. That you and I, as believers, would be like Jesus. Okay, you want to know God's will for your life? There it is. Be like Christ. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it like this. We are to be changed into the same image the image of Christ from glory to glory. Philippians 3.21, we may be fashioned unto his glorious image. Okay, God's plan for his children is to be like Jesus. Okay, and this is God's plan for us right now. Okay, this is the goal of sanctification. Okay, if you picture your inner self in a mirror... We want to see more and more of Jesus as we grow. More love like Jesus, more patience like Jesus. Okay, so our character is to become more and more like him. And this is the good thing that God is accomplishing in the lives of believers. Okay, he's using all things to make us more like Christ. Okay, he's like the woodworker. And you and I, we're in the lathe, and he has the tools, and he is shaping and molding us. Sometimes the tool is suffering. Sometimes the tool is loss. Sometimes the tool is difficulties. But everything is being used to shape and mold us into the image of Christ. But ultimately, this will not be completed until our glorification. Okay, and this will happen for all believers. 1 John 3, 2 says, when he, that's Jesus, shall appear, we shall be like him. Okay, that's the completion of the plan. And this was the plan developed. Why? Well, because it would glorify Jesus. That is the sense of firstborn in verse 29. Okay, that Jesus would have the priority. That he would be preeminent. That the plan would magnify and honor Jesus Christ supremely. Okay, that's the motive behind God's plan. But how is this plan executed? Well, verse 30 goes on to outline the order of the plan. Okay, it assumes foreknowledge since this has already been established. Okay, then comes predestination. That's the predetermined plan that those that God knew would come to Christ in faith would then be conformed. To the image of Christ. Then came the call. Okay, that's the next thing in this order of operations. Okay, the call is referencing the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2.14 says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel. Okay, and those who responded to the gracious call of God in the gospel, who in faith reacted to the work of the Holy Spirit and trusted Christ as Savior, they were justified. Okay, the called were justified, and then those who were justified, they will be glorified. So that's the complete plan. 
But I want you to notice something interesting. Glorified here is in the past tense. And yet it's a future reality. You're not glorified yet. Neither am I. Paul was not glorified when he wrote this. What, what does this mean? Well, one commentator said this. Justified and glorified are both in the past tense and suggests that we should look forward to glorification with the same confidence that we look back to justification. Okay, or to word it differently, our glorification, that the completion of God's predetermined plan is so certain that we can speak as though it has already taken place. Isn't that beautiful? And my friend, this ought to increase our confidence in our security in Christ. Because this text stresses that God is the author of our salvation from beginning to end. And he will complete the work. Because he determined that he would do so in eternity past. And God's plans are irrevocable. Okay, God will not have half-finished projects. That is what is stressed when glorified is in the past tense it is as good as done and my friend you and i we cannot lose our salvation because that goes against god's plan he determined in eternity past that all who believe will be like christ and god can't fail in executing his plan his predestined plan ensures our security and safety because that is part of the plan Okay, and this is the bedrock of our security. This is to infuse us with confidence. This is to grow and strengthen our assurance. Because God planned it. God promised it. And God will do it. Our security and assurance are rooted and grounded in him. And there's no stronger or surer foundation. Okay, you are secure in Christ. And you can have assurance because that is God's predetermined plan. This is the first infallible reason. Secondly, let's consider the present protection, which we find from verse 31 down to the end of the chapter. Now, these closing verses explore many potential threats to our salvation. And it's as though Paul here is answering some possible objections that may have been fired his way. Sure, Paul, you, you say we are safe and secure, but, but what about this? Or, or you seem so confident, but have you considered that? And in this closing section, which we could call a hymn of security, it's as though all possibilities are considered, but every single one of them is blocked and guarded by God's grace. He ensures that there's no possibility that one can be snatched away. Okay, the first thing that we are presently protected from is people. Okay, there, there is no person or living being, human, angel, or demon that is capable of taking away your justification. Okay, it is safer than even the gold at Fort Knox. Verse 31 says, What shall we then say to these things? 
Okay, well, what are these things? Well, this certainly includes what has just been unpacked in the preceding verses. And it may also include all of the blessings and privileges of the believer unpacked in this epistle so far. And the sense seems to be this. Okay, despite all that we have considered, just in case people still have doubts, that they're still struggling, Paul continues to deal with them, to, to give more assurances. Okay, and he says this. He says, if, okay, which could be translated since, since God is for us, who can be against us? That is a wonderful statement. If God is on our side, and he is, who do we have to fear? Who is strong enough to snatch us from the grip of the Almighty? The strength of any potential threats pales into insignificance compared to God. It's like an ant versus an elephant in tug of war. It's no match. Okay, God is positively inclined toward us. He's for us and no one can take us from him. But how do we know? How do we know for sure that God is for us? It's, it's an outstanding reality. It's one that should infuse us with confidence. It's one that should bring us much comfort. But how do we know for sure? How can we be certain? Well, notice verse 32. Okay, this argues from the greater to the lesser. And it says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God proved that he is for us by sending his son to die on the cross in our place. And the point in context is this. God could give us nothing greater Nothing more valuable or more precious than his son. And since he did not hold this back from us, okay, that proves that he's for us. And when it comes to our eternal security, since God gave us Jesus, will he not give us everything else? Okay, if he gave us his greatest, won't he give us what is inferior in Comparison. That's the idea of the final phrase of verse 32, where it says, How shall we not with him also freely give us all things? And it seems that Paul could well have had Abraham in mind. Okay, the verb translated spared is the same term used in the Septuagint to describe the offering up of Isaac. Okay, hopefully you remember that story. And as one author put it, it is difficult to believe that Abraham could ever have held back anything from God after sparing not his son. It is difficult to see how God could hold back anything from us after giving up his son for us. Okay, I hope you can follow that logic. It would be completely inconceivable for God to not finish the work after all that Jesus has done for us. Okay, that the cross is the greatest demonstration that God is for us. And since he has already done such a thing, it is unfathomable that he would not complete the work 
and give us things that in comparison are inferior. Now imagine if you entered a competition to win a new car. And you really needed this new car. Your, your existing car was falling to pieces. But you were not hopeful of winning because you never win anything. But some time passes and your phone rings and you don't know the number. And you answer reluctantly. You're expecting a telemarketer. But it's your local car yard telling you that you have won this new car. How exciting would that be? So you want to quickly make your way down to the car yard. Fingers crossed your old car starts. Thankfully it does. And, and you arrive and you see your new car. It's all shiny. It's wrapped in a red bow. You want to drive it away straight away. But then you're told, well, hey, the car's yours, but you don't get the keys. Okay, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But it would be more ridiculous if God didn't give us everything that we need in light of what he's already done. Okay, when we come to Christ, we get it all. Having given the ultimate gift, God won't withhold the smaller gifts. He is for us. And since God is for us, we have no reason to doubt. We have no reason to fear, for there is no person, there is no living being, human, angel, or demon. There is no government, there is no organization that is strong enough to take us from God's grip. We are safe. Likewise, there's nobody who can bring a damning accusation against us. We see this in verse 33. It says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Okay, there's nobody who can successfully bring a charge against you in the heavenly court if you are a believer. Because verse 34 tells us Christ has died. He's also risen. That authenticates his death. It's the divine stamp of approval. God accept the sacrifice. And now Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding on our behalf. And because of Jesus Christ, nobody can bring a charge against us. Okay, understand it doesn't matter what you have done because Jesus has already dealt with it. Okay, in our justification... We have already been declared not guilty. Okay, and who made that declaration? It was God. That the highest judge has made that declaration. Who can overrule God? Okay, when God justifies a person, all accusations against them at once lose their legitimacy. And my friend, everybody in this world... Could bring a charge against us. Satan himself could make his case. And that'd be a large case. But all of these charges would be instantly dismissed as Jesus raises his nail-pierced hands. And we see this illustrated in Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest is standing before God and his garments are filthy. This is a picture of his sin. And Satan is making all kinds of accusations against him. But the Lord does something amazing. He removes the filthy garments, which is a picture of forgiving his sin, and clothes him with a new garment. And this illustrates our justification. 
our putrid sinful garments, okay, that they were given to Christ and we are now clothed in his righteousness and now no charge can be brought against us. Hence that there is no person, there is no being that can bring a charge against you. Okay, that they are all unable to take your salvation from you. No one is a threat to your eternal security. There's nothing that anybody can say or do that would make you unsaved. There is no accusation that can be brought against you. You are completely safe from any threats that may come from any living being. Okay, so people, living beings, they're not a threat. But what about circumstances? Well, this is the second thing that we are presently protected from. Notice verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? So Paul now shifts his focus to potential circumstantial threats to our safety and security. And I want you to notice the first phrase, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ. Okay, don't miss the obvious point. Our security is grounded and dependent on the love of Christ for us, not our love for him. Our eternal security is not dependent on our love for him. And isn't that a wonderful reality? Because our love, it can increase and decrease. At times it can be frail, fickle and faltering. But the love of Christ, it's steadfast, it's faithful, it's unchanging. And the challenge is issued. Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? And it's as though Paul is throwing down the gauntlets. And he unpacks seven circumstances that might be brought up for consideration. And they're all varying forms of suffering and affliction and it's worth noting that these things were all experienced by the apostle okay this is autobiographical he's not some armchair theologian and he affirms that none of these things are able to separate one from the love of christ no circumstance has the power to tear us from the love of jesus my friend it's an unbreakable love bond okay we're not promised that we will be spared from affliction, but we are guaranteed that no circumstance, no matter how tumultuous, no matter how challenging, no matter how devastating, it will never separate us from Christ's love. But in fact, it will actually have a positive effect. Okay? And this is amazing. Okay, verse 36, this is a quote from Psalm 44, 22. And its inclusion seems to show that there's nothing unusual, strange, or unexpected about suffering. This has always been a part of life for God's people. But then notice verse 37. It says, in all these things, okay, that, that's referring to what's spoken of in verse 35, we are more than conquerors. So not only will these things fail to separate us from the love of Christ, but they are used to bring about good yeah, this is the same point as verse 28. Yeah, as one writer said, a conqueror is a person who defeats the enemy. One who is more than a conqueror causes the enemy to become a helper. 
So our various hardships don't hurt us, but they actually help us. And God uses them to bring about good in our life. So there is no circumstance that can separate us from the love of God. Okay, and as Paul is writing these things, okay, as he reflects on these wonderful realities, as his confidence in his security is increased, okay, he gets super excited. It thrills his soul and he ends with this grand crescendo. Okay, he ransacks the world, turns it upside down, inside out, looking for something that is able to separate us from God. Okay, it's, like, it's like the robber who empties every cupboard, every drawer, everything is pulled out looking for, for valuables. Paul, he has searched the universe and he declares, I am persuaded. This is in the perfect tense, meaning I have become and I remain, unconv- I remain convinced rather. There is nothing that can change my mind. This is my unshakable conviction. I have considered every possibility And there is nothing, there is nothing at all that is able to separate us from God's love. And he chooses 10 things that people may consider as potential threats or barriers. Four pairs, two on their own. And his conclusion is that there is absolutely nothing that is able to separate him from the love of Christ. This is his settled and unalterable conviction. And hence he bursts out in praise and adoration. This is an astonishing climax. There is nothing at all, my friend, that is able to separate us from the love of Christ. His grace guards against and eradicates all threats, keeping us eternally safe. This is the glorious conclusion. And I want to apply this glorious hymn of security and safety in three ways in fact i want to leave you with three words word number one is certainty we can be absolutely certain that we are eternally secure we we don't need to fear that god will give up on us even in all of our weakness in our frailty and sometimes stupidity Even when we're inconsistent, even in our moments of foolishness, in our best times and our worst times, when we draw near to God and when we wander, God is committed to bringing us through. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. He will finish the work. He will complete his predestined plan to make us like Christ. There is no one or nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. God, in his astonishing grace, will keep us. He will bring us through. He will glorify us. This is his commitment. And it all depends on him. And this is why we can be certain. This is why we can be filled with confidence, because our security, our assurance, is dependent on God, not us. Okay, Our certainty is not dependent on our commitment to God, but his commitment to us. Hence, we can be certain. Word number two is commitment. In light of the commitment that the Lord has made to us to bring to completion the work of salvation, ought not we be committed to him? 
Now understand, this commitment is not to earn or merit our security. Salvation is all of grace. It depends on the Lord completely. So that is not the motive for commitment. And that's a relief because we would never measure up. But surely, as Paul goes on to say, it is our reasonable service to live for the Lord. To, to be committed to him. Yet in light of his stunning grace that he's lavished upon us in light of his resolve to finish the work to work all things together for good to keep us eternally safe surely living for him and being committed to him is the least that we can do and since being like christ is our end destination by his grace isn't it the greatest thing to strive for right now to be like Christ, because this is God's plan for us. And this ought to be the commitment of every single believer. Okay, not to be like this world, but to be more and more like Christ. And may we be struck and moved by his stunning grace. Okay, that, that we can't do anything else but be committed to Christ and striving to be more like him. What's the greatest commitment of your life? Okay, what's your greatest commitment? If Jesus Christ isn't the answer, you're wrong. Jesus Christ needs to be the greatest commitment of our life. And the third word is hope. Okay, everybody is pursuing hope, whether they are aware of it or not. We're looking for reasons to live, motives to continue, things to encourage us, and strength for the challenges at hand. And here's the thing, we often look for this hope in the wrong place. Okay, we look for this hope in money, in people, in work, in pleasure, in material things. Okay, we want these things to be our ultimate hope, but they always fail. And here is one of the many blessed and gracious privileges of being a Christian. Only we have the ultimate hope. And our hope is a person, it is Jesus Christ. And our great hope is that one day we will be with him. We will be like him and we get to know and enjoy him forever. That is our great hope. And only this can meet all the deep needs and longings of our hearts. And this is all secure. This is all guaranteed. We're safe in the everlasting arms. This is our great hope. And it's this that gets us through all the trials and troubles, all the heartache and suffering. God will finish the work. We will be like Jesus. And we will be with Jesus for all eternity. Our hope is tied to God, who will finish the work of salvation. And my friend, we are infinitely more safe, infinitely more secure than even the gold at Fort Knox. Amen. I'd like to invite uh, Matthew to lead us in the singing of the final hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Thank you. Uh, we shall sing all three verses, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Let's stand. Yes,
standing. I will close with benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.